It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on everyone? Mika here from my local library. I'm here with a very special episode of Miked Up. This week, I sat down and was able to interview a favorite author of mine, a Charleston native, Eden Royce. Eden is over across the pond, but I was so happy to connect with her. Please listen in. I think you'll find this interview very insightful, very fun, and hopefully you'll be introduced to a few new authors and some amazing work from Eden. All right. Until next time, take care. Peace. Hello and good afternoon uh, over to you over there across the pond, Eden Royce. How are you today? I am wonderful. How are you? I am well. I'm, I'm beyond excited. Um, as we shared offline, I'm beyond excited um, <laughs> to speak with you. Um, I'm a big fan of your work, your, your short stories, your poetry, and um, I just want to have as many people as possible become better acquainted with who you are as an author and as a creative. And so thank you so much for making time to talk about your work. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. So yeah, I have a number of questions, of course, prepared. Um, and I just want to jump in. So the, the first question I have, um, I came across your work um, shortly after moving to the Low Country roughly five years ago. Um, my father's a native of the Charleston area, specifically Wadmala Island. That's where all of my ancestors on my father's side um, are buried. That's where my family still currently uh, lives and um, growing up, I did not have a fond um, appreciation for Gullah culture, and because I was raised in, a, in the Northeast and it was foreign to me, my father didn't raise us with it. Um, but uh, as I got older, I definitely became um, way more intrigued and then completely appreciative of my heritage. And um, so when I found your work and, and made contact with it and saw another layer, another element of of low country culture, um, I, I just became an enthusiastic fan, um, and it really just helps. It helps me feel like um, it, it, it spoke to me. It spoke to me and who I am. Um, and so, I wanted to jump in with the first question. I know I wrote was probably not even specifically about you know the Gullah heritage explicitly, but can you tell listeners just more about you and how you identify? Um, and and yeah, where do you where do you come from? What part of Charleston do you come from? Well, my name is Eden Royce. I am from downtown Charleston, right off of Rutledge Avenue. Um, As far as what I consider myself to be, a number of things, an author, a creative, um, just a a storyteller, a folklorist, if I can be just that bold to call myself that, because I just love researching our culture and incorporating it into my work. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you could. I think you could take that liberty as well. Um, it's yeah. quite a liberty, but I'm. T- but I'm it, taking. Oh, I think you've earned it for sure. So downtown, downtown has changed a lot. I don't know if you you're keeping up with the news, um, but it has. So where I know I'm going to jump around a little bit, but but where are you currently? Currently, I live in Southeast England. Oh, wow. Um, I live in a part of um, the country that's called the Garden of Eden, of the Garden of, <laughs> not the Garden of Eden, the Garden <laughs> of England, uh, which, is, which is Kent. Oh, wow. This sounds magical. Let me just say that. <laughs> it is a lot of, um, a lot of fields and <laughs> a lot of greenery, a lot of orchards and things like that, hence the name. Yeah. So when I read your bio and like different iterations of it um, online and in some of your written work, um, it gave some great background as to who you were. And that's how we we found out that you were from Charleston. Any any readers can find out that you're from Charleston. But you also specifically identify as a freshwater Geechee. Can you tell me like what does that mean for those who don't know what that means and why is it important for you? Well, freshwater Geechee basically just means that I'm from the city. A lot of people within the Gullah Geechee corridor think that Gullah Geechee are only from 
the sea islands. And that isn't true. There's a large portion of us that live inland in many of the cities, anywhere from North Carolina down to Florida. So we call ourselves freshwater Geechees. We don't live on any of the um, sea islands. Certainly we have history there, but we have taken those traditions with us to those cities. And it's apparent in our food and our decor and how we live and what we do every day. Absolutely. I'm, thank you for that. I think that was, um, I've never heard anyone give background to that. Uh, and it, you're right. I think my father, he can recollect um, friends and family members who live downtown their entire lives. And you can, it, it feels very Geechee to me. It doesn't, doesn't feel, it's different, but it feels, it's definitely still Geechee. So thank you so much for that. Um, so what other versions of Geechee exist? Is there like saltwater Geechee, if there's a fresh water? Are, if you're from one of the sea islands and live on one of the sea islands, you're considered a saltwater Geechee. Oh, so so what would you, okay, so I'm born and raised in New Jersey, but my father's from Wadmala. What would I be then? Uh, you would be a Geechee descendant. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that, is, that is the terminology that, from what I understand, is currently used. If you have that heritage, but you may not have right. enough immersed in it, right. you're considered a, a, a Gullah Geechee descendant. Oh, thank you so much. I think this is very helpful for a lot of people. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so is it important, this, the second part of the question I guess I was going to ask is, like, how important is it for you to disclose that or to incorporate that in your writing? Well, one of the hardest things for me as a writer and from what I hear for a lot of other writers is writing your own bio. <laughs> and people can write sways and sways of, of pages and words in a novel or a short story. But when it comes to writing, say, a 200-word bio about yourself, it is incredibly challenging. But for me, it's important to include that I am a Gullah Geechee, whether I include freshwater or not, whether I phrase that I'm specifically from Charleston, because there are, in the literary community, so few Southerners that are writing, that are publishing. And I read an article that within the United States, the percentage of Southerners that are published compared to people from the Northeast, people from the West Coast, people from uh, mid-country is disproportionately low. Mm. And add on top of that the number of Black people that are Southerners that are able to publish literary works or speculative fiction works is even lower. So I think it's important for me to disclose in a bio or even when I submit my work somewhere to a publisher mm -hmm. that I'm very upfront about the fact that this is who I am. This is what my writing is. It is based in the South. It is from me who grew up there and it in infuses my writing without me necessarily even specifically trying to. Absolutely. I did not know that. So yeah, it's important to, um, to have representation and I guess also to affirm the voices emerging from the South. Um, the, the South is also changing as, as you know, the, as are a lot of other regions due to so many different factors, but I feel like the, the South is changing. However, um, the culture that's emerging from it, um, it needs to have a voice. Um, I, I, yeah, I think I often just think is I've always thought that the South was either Scarlett O'Hara, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or something, you know, or really or archaic or white or unfamiliar versions. That's why I think it's important to read authors like you um, or, or even like what Colson Whitehead did did um, back with the Underground Railroad, um, yeah. I, I think it's important to um, to kind of represent these stories. Thank you for that, sharing that part. Um, my next question is, um, I discovered your books. Again, I say this already. Um, I lived in, I was born and raised in New Jersey, um, lived in Philadelphia for the 10 years prior to my moving to this area. Um, and as I said already, that you're, you're, you know, you incorporate um, a lot of Gullah Geechee food, language, customs, and of course the mysticism um, that is root magic. Um, you know, how, how important was it for you 
to add that element to your work, specifically those customs and, you know, those callbacks to, to places and, and bodies of water and all that stuff? It's important to me to include our history, our folklore, because so many times people that are outside of our culture get it wrong, to be honest. Mm. And as a person that tends to incorporate darker themes into my work, Southern Gothic tends to have darker themes. Um, I read and watch a lot of film and books where conjure magic is represented as this evil thing used to hurt and destroy people. Mm. And that isn't the conjure magic that I grew up with. And people that I know that practice conjure, um, I wrote an article about it a while ago. That is not the intent of conjure magics. That was never the original intent. The original intent of Southern conjure was to protect yourself, protect those you love, and protect what you own. And are there darker aspects to it? Of course. But if you watch any random horror movie out there, it would have you think that Southern Conjure is this mm. evil thing that you know corrupts people and, and makes them into these hideous monsters. But it's always been something that is healing for me. It is something that is uh, harkens back to family and comfort and safety and security. And I wanted to make sure that that aspect of conjure magic what I grew up with was represented. And I didn't see a lot of other people doing that. Um, certainly not anyone that had firsthand knowledge of conjure. And I wanted to incorporate that just so that there's a different story out there about what that magic is. Do you think that um, conjure magic uh, was uh, characterized as evil and something inherently dark? Do you think that was more like the colonial forces um, kind of giving it that distinction because it feels uniquely African as well. Southern Conjure is uniquely African, but in a lot of ways it has elements of um, Native American culture. Um, certainly it has roots in European culture as well because of that colonization. We were brought to the United States and the things that we used to use for those magics, not all of them were there anymore. We didn't have the same plants. We didn't have the same animals. We didn't have the same soil. So substitutions had to be made. And when we were able to interact with um, Native Americans, we learned a lot of that magic as well and incorporated it into the elements that we were already using. So it became this conglomeration of things that's currently Southern Conjure, Hoodoo, Root Magic, whatever term you'd like to use. It's all derived from those elements. Mm. And I think that that idea that it's evil and dark is, is rooted in colonialism because a lot of what we were able to practice openly was not able to be practiced once we were brought to the United States. It was seen as an, an evil, strange, savage practice. Mm. And so it had to be conducted in secret and things done in secret are naturally seen to be evil and wrong. Yeah, but it was really just a way of protecting ourselves. You mentioned in the, in the back of Spook Lights, you mentioned how your great aunt, I believe, she practiced conjure magic. Um, and I guess that the question I wanted to ask, because it sounds the way you um, described that, you know, how you became acquainted with conjure magic, it sounded warm. It sounded like, um, you know, passing down recipes or, you know, teaching, you know, a family member how to sew a quilt. So, or um, do you sew quilts? What do you do with quilts? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not, like, I'm not domestic at all. Um, but, but, but no, it sounds, it sounds warm. And it makes me think back to my, um, my time with my great aunt who taught me how to bake pies. And so to you, uh, so when you think back on, you know, your first interactions with conjure magic, is it, is it really warm? Is it, you know, was your, was your great aunt, was she Christian? Um, not to say it matters much, but just kind of want to get a better picture of who practices it. Mm. 
it it absolutely was warm and it was just something when you grow up with something it's not foreign to you it's not alien to you it's second nature and a lot of people don't realize that the majority of people that practice hoodoo and practice root magic are um, Christians mm. um, because hoodoo is not a religion hoodoo is a spiritual practice so mm. a lot of times these people that are practicing hoodoo are um, Protestants um, there's recently been a turn from um, Protestant practitioners to embracing more African traditional religions, but that is a very recent shift. So a lot of people are, are starting to realize more of the effects of colonialism and starting to go back and research some African traditional religions and see where those um, distinctions lie and make that decision, that more informed decision about which course they'd like to, um, which course they'd like to partake in. But going back to your question, it was absolutely a, a warm environment. It was a safe environment. I grew up feeling loved and cared for and appreciated, certainly within my own family. Yes. <laughs> Outside the family, maybe not so much. Right, right. Understand, understand. Um, the other part of the question uh, um, that I asked about the whole, you know, incorporating Gullah Geechee culture and customs, um, I wanted to know how did you how hard was it for you to make it fit into, I guess, the genre that is gothic horror that you that you write in, Southern gothic horror to be specific? Um, how was it hard? Was it is it is it the fact um, is it the nature of the culture that made it an easy fit? Like, how did you pair those two together, gothic horror and Gullah Geechee culture? I don't. It wasn't hard for me to pair those two things together as a genre because mm -hmm. I think. I came to discovering the genre after I started writing. Mm -hmm. I would write the story as I felt it, as I saw it, whatever um, happened to me with that particular tale. Sometimes um, stories come to you differently. Mm -hmm. But in researching what I wanted to consider the genre of what I wrote, that was a very difficult thing for me to figure out because it didn't really it wasn't really fantasy because a lot of what I was writing about were actual practices that people in my family do and have done for ages. So it wasn't really fantastical that I was making all of it up. Some of it I had to make up because, you know, I didn't want my great, great aunt going, don't you put exactly what I, you know, my recipe. So I had to, of course, make some adjustments but it, it didn't feel right to call it fantasy. Mm. Um, and it didn't feel right to call it magical realism necessarily because I know that that genre is typically um, reserved for Latinx authors, um, bred of colonialism there as well. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. a lot of people, yeah, there's a lot of discussion around is African fantasy technically magical realism since it's also born of colonialism, but I didn't really feel like that fit necessarily either. So I think Southern Gothic as a category, as a genre fits it better. Even if you take the word horror away from it, because a lot of people don't like that word, um, Southern Gothic on its own, I think holds itself as a genre. And it's going into the mores of Southern culture it's going into the folklore, it's going into the behavior of Southerners, it's going into um, that legacy of pain that Southerners have. It's going into some of the decaying, decrepit places that used to be grandiose and beautiful and going into cities that are, that are changing, but still underneath all of it, there is uh, a darkness that flows mm. throughout a location, throughout the people in that location. So I think that that is more of a discovered genre for me. And then you look up Southern Gothic as a as a genre, and you you don't see black people as authors in that in that genre at all. 
And my goal is one day that I will be listed among those Southern Gothic authors. Well, let me ask you this. So for those who are like trying to, I have so many questions about this genre part. You don't understand what you just started (laughs) because I, because I think capitalism kind of, and I don't mean to make this like too political, even though whatever, (laughs) Um, but no, I do think like we're forced to create these, these categories to sell books, but almost feels like your work is transcendent. Like it transcends genres. If you could, if you could create a genre, what would, I mean, like, how would you just, how would you call, what would you call your work? Oh gosh. Um, (laughs) I have in different spaces on social media, I've called it Gullah Gothic. I've called it Geechee Gothic, um, which is incredibly specific, Mm. which is why I don't use it necessarily with um, publishers because the first question is, well, what does that mean? Where am I going to put your book in a library or mm. uh, on a shelf? Because publishing is very structured and they want to know very early on in the process, what's the, what's the genre of this book? How do we categorize it? What books are we going to put with it? What's it like? What's it comparable to? And those are things that I had to learn early on that I'm going to have to find a place for my work if I want it to be on a shelf in a library or on a shelf in a bookstore because traditional publishing is that regimented animal where they want to know what's your book similar to but we need your book to be a little different okay so it's something I was sort of forced into and I'm fine and happy to use southern gothic as that category because I do think that it fits and I I would like to wedge myself in and amongst those authors that tend to have people of color as secondary or tertiary characters if they have them at all in their work right and I, I think Anne Rice comes to mind um in terms of is that is that a name that people might most closely I guess go to when they're when they're describing gothic uh, horror or gothic, um, Southern Gothic? I think with Southern Gothic, a lot of people go further back than that. They go back to to Faulkner mm. and Welty, people that you had to maybe read in, in high school. Um, I was asked to mentor a young Black woman writer, and she was interested in writing Southern Gothic, and she was in an MFA program. And when she was asked what she wanted to write, she told her instructor and he seemed confused that she wanted to write in what he considered to be a dead genre. Mm. And she told me this and I was of course aghast. Mm. (laughs) And I said, do they have it? Obviously he's not familiar with the people that are currently writing Southern Gothic. Um, So I told her if that's something she's interested in doing, there's no reason not to pursue it. It's no reason not to think that it's a dead genre just because people of color are beginning to write in that genre. You can't consider it dead because we haven't had our say. And we haven't had our our voices brought to the fore. We've been written about, um, sometimes unkindly. And I think it's time for Southerners and Southern writers specifically to begin to put our our view and our words out there. That's powerful. I, I don't I don't know if you know how powerful that is, but I think um, especially in this day and time where and you've seen this, you've read this, and, and probably um, you know black women are finding their voices um, largely online, uh, and I'm just uh, taken aback by how like dynamic and, and I'm using that word a lot today, but just, just they're just really um, amazingly expressive uh, black women, black femmes and non-men who are just, they're coloring outside the lines and really defining themselves for for themselves. And I think what you're doing, regardless of how you're, you're, you're you know, classified or, or where your books may be on the shelf, I think what you're doing is really giving people giving women like myself permission to to be who they want to be and to to reclaim things that have been uh thought of as dead because we know this is not dead 
No, Southern Gothic is dead. <laughs> awesome. Sorry to filibuster. Let me move on because no, no, no. <laughs> I can. Oh, this me as am I. Um, okay, my next question. <laughs> um, I, I think you already answered it. I, I think I wrote, um, did you always embrace your, no, I didn't ask this. Did you always embrace your Gullah identity um, from an early age? Um, did you always, I guess, did you, were you aware? When did you know you, you were a freshwater Geechee? Well, I will say that when I was growing up, the word Geechee was an insult. Mm. If someone called you Geechee, that meant you, when you spoke Gullah, a lot of people saw it as you're being uneducated. Oh, it was a pejorative. Oh. It, it definitely was. Mm. So you didn't want somebody to call you Geechee, you know, especially not if they were going to suck their teeth afterwards, <laughs> you know, and it was that sort of that mm. girl, that girl Geechee. <laughs> and it wasn't embraced as much as it is now. And I'm so excited to see a lot of people embracing Gullah, embracing Geechee heritage openly um, because it was something that not just in my time, but my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, all of those people who were told that they needed to not speak Gullah in school, all of those people that were held back a year because they didn't speak, quote, proper English. So it was something that I grew up with hearing both, but I was always encouraged to speak proper English. Um, Yeah. But of course, yeah. yeah. And it was something that I came to later in life when it wasn't something that necessarily, um, as you move through the world, you don't necessarily have to identify yourself as far as from a... uh, national origin point of view very often. So it wasn't something that I spoke of a great deal. It was just something that I put into my work. Um, But having moved here to the UK, the opportunity comes up a little bit more often. Um, People hear me speak and they know that I'm American, but they don't know what part of the world that I'm from. And from an outside the United States point of view, saying that I'm from South Carolina is not always a recognizable place Um, from outside the United States. People in the UK, they'll know California or New York or Texas or something like that. But South Carolina, they may not as much. So I'm having to self-identify a little bit more here which gives me more of an opportunity to be able to share some of my background and share some of my culture and say that, you know, um, LGBT food is not what you see on diners, drive-ins and dives. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's how I feel eating. That's how I feel about the Jersey shore. Like I used to tell people I'm I'm from near the shore and they start thinking it's snooky and I'm like, no, not at all. (laughs) It's just amazing how media, um, how media changes people's perceptions mm-hmm. and that's part of why I write what I write because a lot of times the South in general is almost shorthand in film as someone being ignorant or uneducated right. and it's sad that that abbreviation which I understand that shortcuts need to be taken sometimes in film sometimes in other media but giving a someone a southern accent sometimes um, just a shorthand for this person is a bit backwards in their thinking, or whatever have you, is sometimes difficult to take. So that's why I make sure that I write about the South that I know and the South that I grew up with, which is greatly different from the way I see it portrayed sometimes in media. Uh, what? I'm going to just like jump into this next one because I want to hear the answer so eagerly. Um, what are, or who are some of your favorite authors? And like, I, I wrote growing up, but just tell me who are your favorite authors, period, regardless. Oh, gosh. Um, growing up, um, my mother taught school. So a big thing for her, um, we went to the library every weekend. She encouraged me to read Newbery Award-winning books Ooh. <laughs> as, a, as a kid. So 
I read a lot of those, some of which now have, have been considered um, problematic books, but I still <laughs> read them anyway. Right. From a, what books did I love? Um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry as a kid was a book I absolutely adored. Um, Virginia Hamilton was an author that I loved. Um, unfortunately, she passed away at quite a young age. I would have loved to meet her. Mm. I love Jewel Parker Rhodes' books. Um, she's now writing for children. I came to her as an author when she was writing more adult uh, fiction, but she's now writing for younger audiences. So regardless of where you are, you can enjoy her work. Mm. Um, J. California Cooper mm. is, she is the author that I read when I need to feel at home. You know, sometimes you're not reading just for a new experience. Sometimes I read just because I want to bring myself back to center. And her style of writing is just, you feel like you're sitting down with an elder and they're telling you a story. And I love that about her work. And I read a review of one of my stories once and they compared me to J. California Cooper and I was just beyond it. <laughs> um, I, was, I was so incredibly flattered by that because her work is um, it's just home to me. Mm. Um, I do read other things. Um, when I was growing up sci-fi wise, I loved Ray Bradbury. Mm. Um, I loved reading Poe mm. um, and Daphne du Maurier. I read a lot of her work and I read everything. Uh, it sounds like you did. Yeah. <laughs> it would be, you know, just the back of the cereal box in the morning or whatever. Um, but there were just certain things that, that would strike me, you know, and I would make sure to read everything that I could by that particular author. And in a way, I'm still like that. I still sort of gravitate towards certain things, certain authors, certain styles. Mm. Yeah, I think um, this is just me sharing about myself as if people need to hear more about me. But um, <laughs> but um, when you said Newberry Award, when it, I remember looking for that little seal on the books. And my favorite Newberry Award book um, was uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw uh, by Beverly Cleary. Yes. And you, and you know what? I, I loved, now that you made me think about what I liked growing up, I liked the books like that where kids were, were like really like discovering maybe through writing or like I loved um, Harriet the Spy as well because she had a, a spy book. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, something about kids committing things to, to the written word really, like, it, it, that, and it's just, oh, it's amazing. I don't know. I, something about um, the written word and, and just, um, my mom would drop me off at the library. I was a latchkey kid, and sometimes my second home was a library, and I just look for that seal and just start reading. Absolutely. The, yeah. The library, yeah, the library is just, it was a magical place for me. Mm -hmm. um, it was the first job that I ever had in Charleston. Oh, Wow. I worked at the John L. Dart Library. Wow. <laughs> yes. I, and I was getting in trouble all the time because I would find a book that I wanted and I would hide in this corner and I would read it and there'd be books that needed to be shelved and I, I would get in trouble all the time. But wow. it, it was just this wonderful place of, of discovery and the main branch of the library um, used to have just a display of all these Newbery Award books. And I would just go and grab one, mm. usually more than one, and I would just, just race through these books. Wow. Yeah, we, we have that in common. I didn't read as fast, but I definitely could sit in the library all day and just and just go for it. Oh, thank you for sharing that reflection. <laughs> um, okay, let me see what I want to jump into. I wanted to ask you that this personal question. It's not even on the list of questions that I wrote. Um, uh -oh. Have you ever? No, 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 no. It's, it's about another story. Did you ever read? I can't remember his name. Um, the Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. Yes, yes I am. I am. Oh my gosh. I am. 
I'm good friends with him. Get out. Yes. We actually spoke recently. Um, but that story is, it was published, um, I think, by Fireside Magazine. Mm-hmm. And it won three awards, I want to say. Wow. It won, I know it won the Hugo Award. Yeah. Because I was there at the Hugo Awards this year. Wow. Wait. <laughs> there in in Dublin at the Hugo Awards this year and I was sitting there and I think I just cheered myself hoarse when it was announced that 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 story won um I will have to double check that I know it was I'm almost positive it won I will I will have to double check it may have just been in my brain I don't know but it was just this astounding magical moment for me it was the first time I'd been to that sort of award ceremony um and just to see the number of people of color winning awards and being nominated even was fantastic. Yeah, this was Fenderson Clark. I just had to yeah. Google. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a jelly, yeah. I think. Yeah. Awesome. Jelly Clark. Um uh Fenderson's work is phenomenal. Um I don't know what else to say. If you haven't read any of his work, please do it now. Um there's a story called A Dead Jinn in Cairo hmm. that you've got to read. It's stunning. I believe there's a new story out um, in that same world called The Haunting of Tramcar 106, I think it is. I may have the number wrong, but get anything by him, you will not be disappointed. I'm jotting, I'm jotting notes down, even though this is recorded. Awesome. Thank you so much. I just wanted to ask that just as a, sounds like uh, you, you're interested in things that, you know, we have similar interests here and there. So that, that story just really, that's the type of stories I like to hear. And I think it goes back to your point about, you know, for those who don't know, and um, a local artist here, um, Quentin Kashi just did an exhibition uh, that's like a digital collage featuring the face of George Washington with, um, these like antique uh, dentures overlaid, like, you know, layered over. And it, and it talks about how George Washington, his teeth, because he had well, some disease or what have you, and um, uh, and it causes teeth to weaken and he would have false teeth uh, from Negro, from slaves, from the enslaved. Yeah. Uh, um, they, you know, and, and people, we were, we were raised to think it was wooden, they were wooden teeth. I'm sure that was intentional <laughs> disinformation or misinformation. Um, but, you know, this did, a number of his teeth came from actual, uh, you know, a- African, yeah, yeah, Negroes, enslaved Negroes, absolutely. Um, so it's an amazing piece. That, and that would be classified as what, speculative fiction? It is considered speculative fiction. Okay. Um, a lot of what I write is speculative fiction. Okay. Only difference really is, is it literary? No, if it isn't literary, it's speculative. So that includes horror, sci-fi, fantasy. All of that is considered speculative. Okay. Mm. Okay, I'm going to jump to the part that I really like. So my favorite story is Every Goodbye Ain't Gone. Let's just talk about that. (laughs) Um, Because um, I think it kind of sums up... um, some some of the it sums up a, a lot of the other questions but um can you just describe that story to people listening sure um every goodbye ain't gone is about a black charleston family they are chefs they are cooks and when someone needs to speak with one of their dead relatives they call this family and they cook their favorite meal and bring them back so that the asker can get the information that they need to know. Wow. So is this like something that you've done or your family has done before? <laughs> um, I, took, I took liberties with this. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, I took liberties with this story, but uh, the personalities, the, the people, um, those are very much conglomerations of people that I've, known, met, been related to over the years, mm-hmm. but obviously the, the rituals that they do, all of that is fictitious. Right. The, the food itself is real. 
definitely i get very hungry every time i read <laughs> that story um it was it's amazing it just you you tuck a lot of little easter eggs uh for those who are familiar with charleston and charleston culture um it just they're like all over throughout the story and it's just amazing it's, it's um it's really good uh let me ask you you know inside not inside in every in that story and others you feature a lot of strong black women um presumably black um women yes <laughs> decidedly black um but uh i wanted to know how important was it for you to have like in every goodbye and gone mixie is an extraordinarily strong woman um, who's mystical, magical. I get the impression that she's she's sexy, vivacious, um, you know, a handful. How, you know, how important or how did you kind of come up? I guess, why do you incorporate women like like Mixie or, or Luann in your stories? I want to incorporate women that are like the women that I grew up with like my mother, like my aunts, like my grandmother, my great aunts, all of those women that managed to, regardless of the trials and tribulations that they went through in their life, mm. tackled everything with strength and grace. And I think that that affected me on such a deep level at such a young age that I want to put women that are magical practitioners in a light that they aren't always seen in. They aren't always seen as, these women have regular jobs. They they pay mortgage, they pay rent, they raise kids, they, they live lives that are everyday lives. It's not all, you know, living in some, you know, dilapidated mansion on your own until someone comes to ask you, you know, for a reading. You know, you're, you're moving through this world, you're holding down a job, you're dealing with, creditors, you're dealing with the neighborhood and the environment around you. And I wanted to make them parts of the community because my grandmother was a huge part of the community. People would come to the house asking for her advice. They would come to the house saying, I, I, just, I just need this one thing from you. What do I do about this? They would bring things and say, I'll trade you this bag of shrimp for your advice on this or for your help with that. And they were such integral parts of the community that I want to sort of show that, especially in this story, but in most of my work in general. Wow, I think that's very important. And you made that point a little bit earlier in terms of um, how uh, conjure magic and those who practice it, how they are characterized. And oftentimes it's in, some, not all the time, but like in these really foreign or, um, yeah, like really like, like tropey ways of, we don't see them as just everyday people, which is exactly who my aunts are who may be familiar with conjure magic and who may have dabbled here and there. I won't indict anyone, but yeah, <laughs> it's just everyday women that might work at your local school or library for sure. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's yeah. something that is such a normal thing in some communities. And the fact that it isn't embraced as such is something that's always gotten under my skin a bit. Mm. You know, that we as Black people, we as Black women, um, black femmes, however you identify, a lot of times we're seen as so other all the time. And it's because there's this mystique around us. You know, how does, how did she know that? She had some sort of intuition, she had this, she had this. And, it, and it sort of contributes to this otherness that we have that separates us a little bit from humanity. And I just wanna show that these are, these are women. These are, are regular people that deal with the same things that you deal with. Right. I think I, I, I say that you say it gets under your skin. It gets under my skin uh, greatly. Like um, I always tell like newer friends, people who because I don't really fit into uh, one box. Um, I'm not you know, I don't always present as extraordinarily feminine. I don't always um, I don't code switch often at, at all anymore. 
And I, I always find way find people that try to put you in some sort of box. And when they do that, though, for with me, they they remove my my femaleness, and I won't let that be erased. Um, I think it's important, however, I identify. Right, it's important to maintain uh, that we are women essentially, and and, and um, don't other me. Do not. Yeah, I think it's a way to just kind of dehumanize black women. And so, thank you so much for uh, making that point, and it's apparent in your work for sure. Oh, great. Thank you. I'm so glad that comes across. You never always know whether it, it does come through in the work, but I'm glad that it does. Yeah, and, and I'm not disparaging the work from anyone else, but like when I watched the movie um, Ease By You growing up, which is still a favorite movie, right? Um, but the, the Diane Carroll character, it always made me laugh and never... <laughs> It never intrigued uh, in terms of like what she wore, right? And I understand that that might be, and that's a different region and all that. But it always made me laugh that this conjure woman, you know, was the scary woman. And if you saw her in the marketplace, you you know, you'd run and backpedal and knock over the other produce. And mm. not nah, a conjure woman might look like your your auntie, you know, might just look like you know the woman across the street. Exactly, exactly. It might look like, you know, you go to the bank and she's a teller, or you go mm. to the supermarket and she's the cashier. It's, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be an extreme presentation. Right, absolutely. Of course, if you want to have an extreme presentation, so okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people perform. I think too, and, and not even, I'm not faulting, I have grace for, for my people and, and those who are brown and other POCs, um, who might dabble in, in the, a mystical, I don't know how to characterize it, but uh, or conjure work or what have you. But like, uh, I think sometimes people feel like they have to perform or display um, that type of um, mysticism with certain, you know, ornate jewelry and head wraps and things. Like, and that's not a bad thing. I just think that that's just not the only way it, it can look. Um, let me ask you another question because I know I... I time is getting short for me on my end and I am so hopefully we become friends Eden and we can chat because <laughs> oh I got so much more questions that are, that would be of no use to anyone listening to this show <laughs> uh, um, so I guess I'm going to hop back into spook lights um, I want to know what inspired you to it's like describe spook lights to people i keep talking about it um it's it's titled spook lights southern gothic horror um and that's when I'm, I'm just looking at the book right now tell me what is spook lights and what went into it spook lights is a collection of short stories they are southern gothic short stories please don't let the word horror put you off mm. because i think a lot of people believe horror to be some serial killer chasing you through a camp at night with a machete. <laughs> it isn't that all the time. Sometimes it's just this feeling of a little bit spooky, maybe a little bit unsettled. Maybe it's something that you read that doesn't affect you at that moment, but maybe the next day you're doing something mundane, you're in the shower, you're washing dishes, whatever, and something from it just strikes you again and just reverberates within you and just won't leave you alone. And I think that's more of what I write. It's that tingle on the back of your neck. Mm -hmm. And it's short stories based mostly in Charleston and surrounding areas. It's a lot of Gullah Geechee folklore. It's a lot of people trying to deal with the supernatural, trying to deal with their own families, which in some situations are more dangerous than that supernatural element. And a lot of people um, don't realize that sometimes horror can come from within. Having that fear of self, fear of discovering who you truly are as a person and trying to hide from it. And that's what Spook Lights is. And Spook Lights has a sequel, correct? Spook Lights has a sequel. Mm -hmm. Um, Spook Lights 2 is very much in the same vein, but um, two and a half years later, um, things had changed with my writing, things had changed with Charleston. Mm. Um, it was right after the nine oh, yeah. um, that Spook Lights 2, I was putting it together and someone commented to me about 
the second collection and they say it, it feels darker. Mm. It, and I said, it is because I was in a different place at that time. And it was after an event that I never expected to happen in Charleston. So as I was going through and editing it and making changes and deciding what to include, um, I tried to be more inclusive with what I considered needed to be in this collection. So um, there are a few more things that are um, a bit more outside of the box than I think the original Spook Lights is. And we talked about this briefly offline, um, the title of the book, because a lot of people ask me about the title and they think, are you sure about that title? And I'm, <laughs> a bit, I'm a bit concerned about this title. And I understand that um, the word spook has been used as a derogatory term for black people. Mm -hmm. And my experience with the term um, living in Charleston, seeing those little lights over the marsh, um, they're called different things in different parts of the world. But my grandmother always called those spook lights. Mm. And she always called those lights the lights that enslaved people followed mm. to escape slavery and go out through the marshes to freedom. And I always chose to believe my grandmother's terminology for that. And that's where I came up with the name Spook Lights. It's, you know, guiding you out of that idea of what horror is to something different, to something wider and something bigger. And thank you so much for making that distinction or, or just, that's a very beautiful, beautiful way of of understanding what that title means and I, I like much of your work it's almost like a reclamation of you know what may have been bastardized or mischaracterized within our culture we you know it's not you know we we have we have true definitions or we have a different relationship with certain words and customs so thank you for that um so what as we wrap up what's next for you Oh gosh, so much <laughs> stuff is happening right now. Some of it I can talk about, some of it I can't. Um, but I have my debut novel coming out. Um, it's called, it's currently called Tying the Devil's Shoestrings. It is a middle grade Southern Gothic novel um, about twins learning root work and trying to protect their family from uh, racism and from supernatural threats. So um, that's coming out early 2021 from uh, HarperCollins and Walden Pond Press. Say that name one more time. The title? Mm -hmm. uh, Tying the Devil's Shoestrings. Okay, and so Eden, Eden, I'm a twin. I have a fraternal twin brother, so I'm like, what? <laughs> oh yes, and it is, um, it is fraternal twins. They are a boy and a girl. Get out! They are yes. So this might be right up your alley. It's so funny because my brother is a pastor, so he probably would be terrified about this genre. But a lot, oh. a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but some people are terrified of it. Um, because it isn't something that they grew up with. It isn't something that they necessarily understand. And it's always been presented to them as something dark and something evil. Um, when there are in reality, other things in this world that are much more terrifying. Exactly. And yeah. learning protection spells and how to keep your family safe, along with the Gullah language and Gullah culture and practices and ritual. I've included a lot of that in the book. And so I'm really excited. I'm excited for that to come out. Okay. Thank you. And let me give my brother some credit. He's actually very, very down to earth and very cool. So let me not do that, but um, <laughs> he'll probably love it. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. So I'm excited for that. I'm already like getting ready for that. And Harper Collins, I'm, I'm so super psyched. I have to uh, purchase Spook Lights too as well. So I can, 
get get my fix. Um, let me see. What else do I want to, you know what I'm going to ask you to do? Um, I'm going to include in the show notes because I, I do post the show after it, uh, it um, airs on um, on radio. I put the show on SoundCloud and iTunes as podcast. Um, and so, and I always include show notes. So I don't know if you have any time, but if you could just forward me some books that you think um, people who, um, you know, books that you have that you've um, uh, had published and maybe one or two of your favorite reads. Cause I really want to get people in the, maybe get them in the habit of reading books that are, that dabble either in magical realism or Gothic horror, Southern Gothic horror specifically. I'd love for you to just recommend something. Sure. I would, I would absolutely love if, can I recommend one of my own shorts for you? Please do. I'm all of them. <laughs> I, I wrote um, a short story uh, titled for Southern Girls When the Zodiac Ain't Near Enough. Ooh. Um, and it's, obviously it's very Gullah Geechee, but it's, um, I have a set of Gullah Geechee wisdom cards Ooh. that I consulted when I was um, writing it. And there was a call for submissions for this magazine, Apex Magazine, which I wanted to be published in for a long time and had never um, had a story accepted. And the theme was Zodiacs. And I did all this research, looking up Zodiacs from different parts of the world, and nothing really felt right. So I just created this Southern girl Zodiac. And the main character in the story is sort of at a crossroads in her life. And she goes to get a reading. And you get to see some of those cards, some of those Zodiacs, as she sort of moves through her reading and moves through feeling unsettled and comes well I won't tell you what she comes to okay <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat <laughs> but that's um where that sort of was was born from so I'll be happy to um include that story oh absolutely then, uh, I think there is a story that I have coming out soon um it's a reprint from an anthology of all Black women, um, horror and poetry um, called Psychorax's Daughters, which was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award when it came out. And um, a magazine will be reprinting that story online sometime soon, which is called uh, Sweetgrass Blood and is very much about um, people that are from Gullah Geechee heritage, which we tend to sometimes be a little bit hesitant to share our culture with others because so much has been taken from us. So a woman who's sort of at a crossroads of trying to decide how much of that culture she should share versus ancestors who may not want her to share it. So that's where that story was born from. So I'll make sure to yeah those. Yeah, please. Yeah, those links to that where people can find it, if it's online, if it's in anything on um, print. Um, I, you just opened up another can of worms. I hope I'll be able to do my real job um, <laughs> this, this month, but um, it's almost Halloween. I don't, oh, this is the last question. <laughs> it is Halloween and I've been on my, I use Instagram primarily. Um, I, I am an activist and I don't do I'm putting I'm using air quotes I don't do activism in traditional ways I just like I love to to feature content or create content um that's radical and and your work is is definitely um radical work to me it redefines so many things it dispels so many myths about blackness and southern blackness um thank you so much for making time for mic'd up for me um thank you so much I I'm beyond just grateful for you it was my absolute pleasure. And I will just say if there's um, any advice that I can give to anyone that would want to write or want to share stories or anything like that, um, just just do it, just get writing. You know, find a supportive group, whether it's in person or online. It doesn't have to be large. It's probably better if it's small, but find people that have your vision and, and get your work because they're gonna be the people that are going to keep you motivated and keep pushing you to share your view of the world. And you need that because writing can be hard and knowing that there's somebody out there that is looking for your work, that's appreciating your work is 
an enormous boost to most writers. So it was wonderful to talk with you today. Thank you so much. And you just inspired me to just get back to a project that I've I've shelved because I didn't think I was good enough. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, we will talk offline and you take care over there. Definitely. Thank you so much. You do the same. And come back. <laughs> I will. I will let you know the next time I am in Charleston. Okay. Take care, Eden. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.